please rise for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as, he, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Thank you. You may be seated. Doesn't sound any, oh, it does. Let me start again. I read this story this week about a kindergarten teacher who had assigned her students to draw a picture of a celebrity or a per, an important person that had impacted their life. The children got busy drawing pictures, coloring, and sticking out their tongues like little kids do when they try to draw. The teacher walked around the class and saw some of these little people drawing pictures of presidents, uh, perhaps a sports figure, but most often mom and dad or a sibling. But one young man was really intent. So the teacher walked around and peeked over his shoulder and said, Tommy, who are you drawing? Without taking his hand away from the drawing or lifting up, he just said, God. The teacher said, well, you know, Tommy, no one really knows what God looks like. He said, when I can finish this picture, they will. <laughs> now, in that story, there's a, there's a sense of, of humor, but there's also a powerful story. There's a powerful image that we get. What does God look like? And I suspect if we all had a piece of paper, we would try to draw something and I was caught by that story as, as I was asked this week to fill in for Zig. I'm glad to see he was here and feeling a little better. 
But as I thought about that, I thought, wow. And I was drawn to the last number of weeks and months for our church where the leaders of our church and Pastor Ken have been trying to communicate to us where they think TPC or what they think TPC, Thornhill Baptist Church, will look like in the next coming days. What is the picture that God wants us to see? And I thought, now how would I, I don't know what to draw that picture, but I started to believe that perhaps our leaders felt a bit like the Apostle John on the Isle of Potmos, where if you know the story, he was there and he was called in the spirit, or literally, depending on how you interpret the scriptures, to be in heaven and write down what he saw. And hence, we have the book of Revelation or the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, our leaders, for a number of months after they received surveys from you folks, were in our upper room. They were called off their pot moss to the upper room. And they spent weeks and months sharing their heart, listening to God, and also listening to what you had to say. And they came up with a word picture that we see. And we've been speaking about it over the number of months. Pastor Ken has eloquently taken each part of it and shared that with us. But I sat this week and I thought about two words, community and Holy Spirit. I think it's appropriate to have those two words in our minds as we're just now in the Pentecost season. Pastor Ken last week spoke so eloquently about Pentecost, what that meant. Well, I thought, I want to draw a picture from our passage today. I want to create a picture of what I feel the church of Pentecost will look like. Not a Pentecostal church, but the church of Pentecost. What does that look like for us? For certainly our leaders have envisioned it in, a word, in words. What does that look, for us, look like for us in detail? Well, I would suggest that our story, really, if I can get my little doohiggies out here, that's a new word in case you didn't know. I believe that the frame of the picture, I think James has got to get it up now. Good. The frame for this picture really comes out of Acts uh, 2.43. That's the frame. And the frame is always the first thing you see in a picture before you even look at the picture. The frame stands out. And the frame for my picture this morning out of our story is Acts 2.43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That's the frame. In our text today, we see God healing a man's life or healing the life of a person. We see people, the disciples, who had themselves been touched by the power of God, now touching others. In the story, the lame man came to the gate beautiful and begged for his living. He was crippled from birth. He was born that way. He had to depend on others to do just about everything for him. 
From the time he was born, they would carry him to the gate called Beautiful. And for you historians, the gate was beautiful. It was made of Corinthian brass, and along with that were gold and jewels spattered amongst the, gate, the gates of the colonnade. And he would be carried there every day to beg for a living. And he had to depend on his friends to get there. And they would take them there, and he would sit at the gate, perhaps amongst others, and he would wait and beg, as the story says, as people went in to prayer time. The ninth hour was a Jewish cushman. Three o'clock in the afternoon, the Jewish people would go to the temple for prayer. It was a custom that they followed every day, and this man was there every day. And so when I think about our mission statement, and I think about the word community, the first thing that comes to mind is to recognizing that we are community. We here are a community of God. And the second thing that stands out for me where the presence of the Holy Spirit is there. Two words. That leads me to ask myself, what does a spirit-filled church look like? What does a church where the presence of the Holy Spirit is not only present, but active, and what kind of picture should that look like? And I realize that, as was with my young student in kindergarten, he was trying to draw it. I'm going to try to draw it today. From our story, I believe there are six things that are the characteristics of a spirit-filled church. The first one being, a spirit-filled church begins to see the world and their community with a renewed eyesight. With a renewed eyesight. Now, let me, under, let me help you understand why I say that. Peter and John were Jews. They practiced the Jewish customs, and they had gone through those colonnade posts many, many times at 3 o'clock in the afternoon for prayer. As a matter of fact, if you read the scriptures, they went through those colonnade posts with Jesus. And so they had passed those gathered around these posts, including this 40-year-old man who was a paraplegic. They passed him every day. It became normal for him. It was part of their normal life. And they went through that colonnade, and he sat there every day. And they saw him every day. Just as we go about our lives, and there are things that are in our lives as normal every day. But when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, when God breathed the Holy Spirit into their life, as Ken shared with us last week, when Pentecost came, God breathed in them, the disciples, a newness of life, the Holy Spirit, just as he did in Genesis. If you know the story of Genesis, when God created man, he breathed life into him. That was physical life. Now God breathes spiritual life in a new way. The Holy Spirit now indwells believers. 
That means he indwells you and I if we are a follower of Christ. I'm a little, I, I get always a little kind of nervous when I hear a preaching and say, you're welcome here, Holy Spirit, or come, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is already there. He is already here. He is already in your life. He is already in this community if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So let's stop asking him to come and start waiting to see what he will do. Peter and John walked through that gate, but this time they saw around them with a different set of eyes. They saw through the eyes of God. And for the first time, they saw something very normal in their life. Their attention was drawn to him. They were attracted to him. They had walked by him over and over and over. But not this time. Because when the Holy Spirit is active in your life, and when the Holy Spirit is active in a community, we begin to see things from the eyes of God. Or we should. Because that's a characteristic. That's a brushstroke of a spirit-filled church. This man had been there for a long time. But now, Peter saw him in a new way. He no longer just became part of Peter's normality. He became a part of Peter's life. And so the second thing, a spirit-filled church, a spirit-filled church lives with a sense of expectancy. As we look at this story, this young man, this paraplegic, has been there his whole life, and he's begging. The story says he begs for alms, for ways to make a living. He can't work. He can't walk. He has no way of getting around, and he draws his sustenance to live through begging. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced walking by people in the streets of Calgary or the streets of life, and you see beggars, street pandlers. We have all kinds of names for them. If you've ever noticed that most of the time as you walk by them, their eyes are down. Their eyes are down. They're not making contact with you because their life has very little meaning. It's an existence, just a hope somebody will give me some money or something. Down in the United States when I was trucking, there were a number of them that would always be at the truck stops or the rest stop where trucks would pull in and they'd be sitting by the washrooms and their head would be down and they'd have a sign, I'm a veteran or some other circumstance. But they'd never make eye contact with you. I think this was the scene of our young man sitting at the gate downtrodden, and just looking down and hoping. But Peter said something to him. The first thing he said was, look at us. He immediately got their attention. He immediately got his attention and said, look at us. The young man looked up and stared at Peter and John, and Peter said, 
silver or gold I do not have, but what I have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I want to stop there. This young man had probably heard about Jesus of Nazareth. He probably heard the stories and the signs that Jesus had done. He may even have heard Jesus speak from the temple from a distance. He certainly, hear, he certainly heard the Pharisees and the Sadducees argue about Jesus. And he heard the disciples tell their story about Jesus. And so when he looked up and stared at Peter, he expected something. He didn't know what it was, but his expectation was ignited. Let me bring that into the 21st century church. Let me bring that into Thornhill. How often do we come to church expecting God to work? Because God will only respond to your level of expectancy. If you expect little things, guess what you'll get? If you expect big things, guess what you'll get? God responds to his children who are expectant or expecting to receive something from him. That's what this man saw. He was expecting something. He didn't know what it was, but he knew it was something. I don't know about you, but I think the longer we're in a church, the longer that we participate in a congregation, which becomes our normal family and community, I'm not sure we have much expectancy. I think sometimes we think we've got all there is. Sometimes I think this is it. Our story tells you you're so wrong. God has much to do, much to do with this church. God is going to take you places you've never seen before if you expect him to take you. If you just expect to stay the same, guess what? You'll stay the same. Does that mean God doesn't love you? Not a question. Does that mean you don't have a relationship with Jesus? Not a question. But what it might mean is you're not a spirit-filled church. You're a, you're a church where the spirit is, but you're not a spirit-filled church. There's a difference. There's a difference. Thirdly, the spirit-filled church participates in God's healing hand. A spirit-filled church participates in God's healing hand. The minute that Peter had this man's attention, he did two things. First, he admitted to himself his bankruptcy, his bankruptcy of material things. He had nothing to give this man. It's not that Peter was in, and John were opposed to giving to the poor. It's just they didn't have anything. But equally important was that Peter 
recognized, perhaps for the first time, his amazing adequacy in the spiritual realm. He realized his, his own personal spiritual equality. And he said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, arise up and walk. How could he say that? Because Peter and John and you and I are partakers in the divine nature. We are partakers in the divine nature. Can you get that in, your, in, in our hearts? Can we understand? We're participants in the divine nature. We're not divine. We're not Jesus. We're, but we're participants in everything he has and we have the ability and the adequacy to do it. I wonder, do we believe that? Do we really absorb that? Or are those just the preacher's words? Because the disciples were partakers of the divine nature they could impart the power of Christ because the, full, because the fullness of Christ was in them. You see, we can only give what we think we have. We will never be able to impart a heavenly touch to others unless we understand how, how deeply we have been heavenly touched. And then we can impart that onto others. We can be partakers in all that God says we can do. I think I've told you this story, but it's worth sharing again. There's three times in my life as a pastor that I have heard the Holy Spirit speak to me about a healing. The first time I said, I'm not Pentecostal. We Baptists don't do those things. That's what actually went in my head when I sensed God speaking to me. But I said, I'll pray anyway. And I began to pray for this young man who had cut his hand, cut his thumb on a skill saw working on a Bible camp chapel. So I bowed my head. I didn't get very close because I don't like blood. When it comes on TV and I'm watching something, I kind of pull a hoodie over my head. But I bowed to pray, and that same quiet urging from the Holy Spirit said out loud, and I couldn't do it. Why? Because I was afraid of what people would think. And what if it didn't work? That's where we live our lives, Christian brothers and sisters. What if it didn't work? It doesn't work because we don't have the confidence that we are partakers in the divine nature of God. I went into my cabin that way, and in tears I said, God, give me another chance. Give me another chance. And he did twice. Because I don't perceive to be a healer in some glorified way. I simply want to be a servant. And two times that happened. Once in my church, 
where I called this man up publicly who had a tumor that was malignant and the prognosis was that it was going to be term would terminate his life. And I called our congregation to send because I said the Holy Spirit has asked me to pray for him and lay hands on him for healing. I don't know what that means, but I will do it. He was healed. You see, the secret of healing for God is not healing and telling God how to heal. It's simply asking God to heal. And he will do what he needs to do because we're partakers in his divine nature. I found this illustration kind of meaningful in that light. In the last two points, it was said by the great philosopher, uh, a Greek philosopher, Socrates, Socrates, and a young man approached him one day and asked him, can I be a disciple? Socrates, Socrates asked him, what do you want? He said, well, I want knowledge and wisdom. Socrates said, follow me. He led the young man to the waters in a nearby river. Socrates took the young man's head and submerged it under the water for 15 seconds. And then he led him up, and he said, now what do you want? He said, I want knowledge. Socrates took his head, and he put him under the water for the second time and held him there for about 30 seconds. I've seen some baptisms go like that. And after 30 seconds, he raised his head up and he said, now, young man, what is it that you want? And he says, I want knowledge and wisdom. He grabbed him by the head and he threw him in the water the third time. And he held him there so long that the folks that were around the river with him began to gasp and were worried that he would drown. And finally, Socrates let him up and Socrates said again to him, what do you want? This time the young man said, air. I want air. Give me air. Socrates said to that young man, when you want knowledge like you want air, then you will have it. When we want God like we need air, then we will have it. The question is, is our head still under the water and are we still kicking and screaming? Because we need air. The fourth thing, spirit-filled church ignites an abundance of joy. We know the story. This young man, he was now walking and jumping, and his ankles were strong. But if we really look into the story, there's something that we see much bigger than that. It wasn't just that his ankles were made strong. It wasn't just that he had strength in his legs. It's that he had newness of life. He had, been in God, he had confronted God and God had confronted him. And he had been set free because somebody cared for him. Somebody reached out and touched him. And I thought, if, if that was me, man, I'd be running all over Calgary. I'd be running all over Airdrie, showing myself to everybody. Not him. Where did he run? He ran to the house of God. He ran directly to the house of God, and there he started jumping and leaping and praising God. Because he was filled with joy. 
And a spirit-filled church needs to find the joy of Christ in the simplest of things and in the greatest of things. I think we've stopped leaping. We have stopped leaping. But if we're going to move forward and if we're going to capture the vision that our elders have laid forth to us, let's start participating. I was lucky enough, as was Pastor Ken, to be in a meeting downstairs when all of our ministry leaders and the elders were there and they were sharing uh, the vision with us and they were telling the stories of, of what it meant to them and how God had spoken to them and, and it became a really exciting place. And I was writing notes down and I thought, oh man, this is cool. And I'm writing things and it came to a conclusion and uh, I think Pastor Ken was asked to lead in prayer. We started praying and as we were praying, I wrote on the final page of of the little book I had, I am fully in. I am fully into that. Because that is a spirit-filled church. Not a church where the spirit is, but a spirit-filled church. There's a difference. So I remember Vance Harner said this, some dear souls think themselves dignified when really they are petrified. And I mean like a petrified rock. They're immovable from where they are. If we are not movable, we will go nowhere. If we're not expectant, we will go nowhere. We will remain where we are. Amber Brockfield tells a story she was sitting in a church one Sunday when a small child turned around and began to smile at the people behind her. Ever had that happen? Sitting in some little girl or boy turns around and smiling and giggling at you. She was simply smiling, doing nothing, and not making a sound. When her mother noticed, she said in a stage whisper, stop that grinning, you're in church. And she gave the child a little swat and said, no, that's better. Emma concluded that some people come to church looking like their deceased rich aunt left everything to her pet, her pet hamster. Sometimes when I look out as I'm preaching, I think I'm, I'm looking at a bunch of people that, that had breakfast, sour lemons for breakfast. And when people come in from the, uh, from the church for the first time from the outside, they want to see something better than that. They want to see something better than that. A spirit-filled church is a church that ignites joy in the community. This community and that community. A spirit-filled church stands amazed at what God is doing. All the people saw him walking and praising God. There was an immediate twofold effect. The people were convinced that it was God at work. And this miracle had been done in the name of Jesus. One of the things that has attracted me to this church from the time I came as your intern and then under Pastor Ken's teaching 
Jesus comes first. It's never about me. It's never about Ken. It's all about Jesus. And when everything that we are doing here is all about Jesus, amazing things will happen and people will be amazed. A spirit-filled church is amazing. I recall our church in Osler, and I'm a pretty conservative character, politically and spiritually. But when I went to Osler, I began to grow as a pastor and realized, as, as Ken has been teaching, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And it wasn't long that a few girls in my congregation started coming to the praise and worship team waving flags. And then not too long, a few of them were dancing in the aisle. And this conservative pastor literally thought all hell was breaking loose. But people began to stand amazed at what was happening when they just let loose and let Jesus work. Finally, Ken said I could have an hour, but I won't take it. Finally, a spirit-filled church becomes a witness of light within the midst of darkness. A spirit-filled church becomes a witness of light in a world of darkness. As we have already noted that this man indeed needed indeed what all people need, and that is a heavenly touch from God. Whether you are a believer or whether you're on a pilgrimage search, we all need a touch from the heavenly Father. And a spirit-filled church should be a place where we are being touched and we are touching others in witness. Now, I'm an evangelist, so I took this passage pretty, pretty seriously and I got pretty beat up as I started to read some commentaries and some research in the passage. And I got this, you say you want to be a witness? Well, how do you witness for Christ? Good question. You do not witness by learning a certain set of, a fact, a certain set of facts about Christianity and going out and peddling those. As though you were a cyclopedia salesman or were trying to get some prescriptions to a Christian faith magazine. Unfortunately, that is not what people think witnessing, that is what people think witnessing is. But it's not. True witnessing always follows three things. First, God works. And then man explains what God did. And the results are, God works again. You see, witness does not begin with an explanation. Too often we send people out, me, 
with the four spiritual laws or John Kennedy's program, and that's witnessing. I'm learning that don't work so good. At least not now. It worked great for Billy Graham. I must confess it worked really good for me when I spoke at youth camps and for 30 years. But the reality is, all of those who might get saved through Billy Graham, all of those who might get saved through an evangelist is minuscule. Then who, what will get saved through true witnessing? What the 21st century needs is true witnessing. The normal pattern is to let God do something, then explain to a person what he did, and explain why. We often want to tell people facts and say, now accept Jesus. But we don't show them anything that's happened to us. We don't express any change in us. We just have the facts. Peter says, and I close with this, always be ready to give an answer to every man who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and curiosity. A spirit-filled church understands how to witness. Our world, upward mobile and downward mobile, that meaning the affluent and the not so affluent, have a big hole in their God heart. There's a hole in there that there's only one thing that will fill it, and that is Jesus. And we need to be a witness to that fact of what has he done in your life. And one of the reasons that I find that modern-day church, particularly churches of, that have longevity, like our church, we haven't seen God do too much recently, have we? We haven't seen God do too much recently. I ask you, what has God done in your life recently? Your own personal life. Let me put it another way. Are you expecting God to do something in your life? Because if you're not expecting him to do something, guess what? He won't do something. And if he doesn't do something in your life, how can you tell somebody what God has done for you? From this point on, I challenge us, I encourage us. Let's not ask the Holy Spirit to be present. Let's ask, Holy Spirit, explode in me more. Fill me with Pentecost. Fill me with Pentecost. And maybe you'll begin to walk with a new set of eyes. You'll begin to see things in your normal everyday life, but you'll see them through God's eyes. And then you can be a witness. You can tell people what God has done in you and just explain it and then let God work again. Do you want to see this church change?
I wonder. I really wonder. It's really great for me to come up and preach this message because I'm not pastor here. So I can spiritually beat you up all I want. But I believe your elders and leaders caught a glimpse in their heart of what this church will look like in 20 years. And I believe we can say it in one sentence. Thornhill Baptist Church has become a spirit-filled church. And it will start with each one of us here. The with one person. But I can't go. I am an evangelist. I can't leave any service I'm in and saying, if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, if you have not been touched by Jesus, and you've been coming to church forever and ever and ever, and nothing seems to change, then I say, speak to me after the service. Speak to me after the service. Because Jesus may want to touch somebody today. Father in heaven, you are holy. You are righteous. You are creator, sustainer. And you are the giver of physical life. And you are the father of spiritual life through our Lord Jesus Christ. And dear Jesus, you have not left us alone when you ascended to your rightful place in heaven, but you gave us another one like you to live within us, to fill that hole in our spiritual life. And it was called Pentecost. And so, Father, I pray that Thornhill Baptist Church will become a church of the Pentecost. And it will begin with each one of us. And so I don't say, come Holy Spirit. I say, explode Holy Spirit and lead us on in Jesus' name.